Our Father, we thank you so much as always for a chance to uh, be in your word. I uh, lift up the intentions, Father, of those in this room that for uh, reasons of their own, they, they may not have felt the freedom to uh, voice those concerns, Father, but that matters not, for we know that you know them. And Father, we ask as you search the hearts of those in here and you understand our needs and our wants and our pain and our concerns and uh, all those things, Father, that we may harbor in our heart. I pray, Father, you would impress upon us the opportunity to just lay those before your feet tonight and trust in you. And in doing so, Father, we look expectantly for a loving, careful plan as you've laid it out in our lives. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the opportunity to approach you in this way tonight in prayer and as well, Father, in study of your word. Father, there is nothing else you've provided us, not through uh, supernatural nor natural means that could hope to achieve all that your word can achieve in our lives. And uh, we know that, Father, so well that we would give us a part of our week and our day today to come here and hear your word spoken and to uh, let it do its work in our hearts, Father. We do trust in it, for we know, Father, it is a power to save to all who may hear it. And, Father, let us uh, go into Jonah tonight expecting to hear from you and learning about this man and about what he did well, but also in what he did poorly. Father, in all that you've revealed through this man, I pray that we would see ourselves even where it is appropriate, and we would be ready, Father, to act accordingly as you convict us tonight and as you stir us onward to greater things. We praise you and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Jonah. If you're not quite clear on where the book is, it's a minor prophet near the end of the Old Testament. Uh, and as we've said first night, it's only a few pages. Don't, don't page too quickly, you'll miss it. And case in point, tonight we're going to finish this book. It's been two weeks since we've been here, and I know for many of us that's just long enough to completely forgotten everything that's been taught up to this point. So uh, it's probably a good moment here to just go back and review briefly what we were doing at the end of chapter 3 last week. Remember, we, we saw the prophet Jonah in the city of Nineveh, the capital of the country or the nation of Assyria. So Assyria, its capital Nineveh, had undergone this miraculous transformation, which was a response to the tepid preaching of this prophet Jonah, who was a reluctant man, remember? A reluctant prophet to this Gentile nation, to a nation that he knew to be an enemy of the nation of Israel. When he was first presented with his opportunity to go to Nineveh and to preach what God had given him to preach, his first response was to run the opposite direction, then... Following that, he attempted suicide off the side of a boat in the storm. Finally, from the stomach of a fish, he relented and agreed to go to Nineveh. So he's clearly not an enthusiastic man with the mission he's been given. When he goes and he preaches God's word, he does it, as we saw, without much enthusiasm, knowing that God is faithful to save those who respond to his word in repentance and seek his mercy. And as we learned last time, the last time we met, his lack of enthusiasm was due, at least in part, to a knowledge that he had from a contemporary prophet, a man named Amos, who was telling the nation of Israel that they were going to be destroyed for their wickedness, and, more importantly, that the method of their destruction was at the hands of the Assyrians, the very same nation that Jonah is now being sent to, to preach repentance. So in knowing that, Jonah is clearly unmotivated at the prospect of helping his nation's enemy survive God's wrath because ultimately it would give them the ability to last and come and destroy his very own nation. Yet despite his lack of enthusiasm, what we saw last week was this giant city, a city we understood out of Scripture to be about the size of the distance between San Antonio and Austin, a city huge in ancient times. That entire city, we are told, repented at the voice of Jonah, a message that was only heard by a fraction of the city, and yet it spread like wildfire to the point where the whole city now had converted. Clearly, a supernatural act. A Gentile city responding to the true living God from a message of mercy delivered by a man who was hoping no one would hear him. A supernatural result. And that brings us to the beginning of chapter 4. Now, even before we read the verses tonight, I've got to prepare you for one outcome. If you had assumed that this stubborn man, this stubborn prophet, had learned his lesson in the stomach of that fish, well, I'm sorry to break the news to you, he may have become obedient to God in action, but it has not yet reached his heart. 
And what you're going to see in the verses we read tonight is a man who, though he went to Nineveh and spoke the words, was not pleased with the outcome. If you know the end of the story, you've already gone ahead of me in your mind. So why don't we get there in the text? Chapter 3, verse 10 is where we're going to start tonight because I want you to see the context that brings us into chapter 4. So chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw their deeds, speaking, of course, about the city of Nineveh, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? We'll stop there. So Jonah's upset at God, clearly. And in the Hebrew of verse 1, if you were to translate it in a perfectly literal sense, verse 1 of chapter 4 would read like this. It was evil to Jonah with great evil. His view of God's actions were, it is evil, great evil, that God did what he did. And why? Well, let's consider the facts. Let's just run through what God has done after all. You have Jonah, the evangelist, and you can put that term in quotes at this point. Jonah, the evangelist, just witnessed the largest single conversion moment the world had yet seen. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 120,000 people in the span of a day becoming followers, believers in the true living God. And on the basis of just one man's preaching... And the conversion was the most unlikely kind of event because you had at the beginning a group of committed pagan worshipers who were enemies of the nation of Israel and they hear a very hard, a very threatening message spoken by a citizen of that hated nation of Israel. And they only, only a fraction of the city actually heard it in their own ears and yet the result of it was that this entire nation, this entire city-state, agrees with the prophet and chooses to seek mercy from that foreign nation's one and only God, rather than to seek it from their own gods. And in response to this miracle, I mean, if you want to just think of yourself as Jonah here for a moment and how you would react to an opportunity to to minister in this way with this kind of fruit, in response to that, what Jonah does is Jonah gets mad at God for God doing something so miraculous through him. Now, there's a phrase that I can use here to describe what's going on. It's a bit trite, but I think it's still appropriate. Jonah is having a pity party. Ever heard that phrase before? He's having a pity party here. He feels all this self-pity over these circumstances. He feels like, and and I want to try to put the sense to what I think is is inherently in the text based on what is written. He feels like the one who is, he's the one who single-handedly destroyed Israel by virtue of having rescued their enemy from destruction. He's enabling the nation of of Assyria to survive God's wrath, and in so doing, enabling them to come later and destroy his own country. So when he expresses his anger against God, he does so with what I think is remarkable honesty, never mind hubris, in telling God that, didn't I tell you this would happen? Isn't this what I told you would happen, God? That's why, and he follows it by saying, that's why I fled to Tarshish to forestall this, or the word can also mean to prevent this. Now you know why I ran. I ran because I knew good and well this is what you would do. Now why does he say that to God? And what does that tell us about Jonah? He says what he says almost as if he's trying to justify the running. You get the sense of that? He's gone back now to sort of explain to God, see, I told you I was right to run because look what you did. It's a bizarre kind of logic, isn't it? He feels that since he was correct in guessing that God intended to save these people. Now, uh, now that it's actually happened the way he predicted it would happen, well, there you go, he feels justified by his original behavior. See, I was right to run. Which simply tells us this, that Jonah's willingness to go to Nineveh may have been a form of obedience in some sense, but it wasn't the substance of obedience. You know, the difference between form and substance, right? Form means it looks like what you expect. Substance means it is what you expect. He had the form of obedience, but not the substance. The body obeyed, but the heart was still in rebellion to God's plan for Nineveh. Even more telling is the way Jonah lists 
And I, and I find this just remarkable. The more I read it, the more funny it is to me. He lists God's natural attributes, God's inherent characteristics, His nature. He lists those attributes out and then throws them back in God's face as if they were negatives. In verse 2, he says, I knew you were kind and good. See, I told you. You're too good. I knew you were patient. I knew you were forgiving. I knew you would receive those who repent. That's why I had to run. It's all your fault. Because of the kind of God you are. (laughs) I mean, where do you begin with someone like this? The irony just, and the ridiculousness of it, and the stupidity of it, piles on top of one another, and you just want to take this person and just shake them for a while. You're not even sure where to begin reasoning with them. Well, let's see if we can try. In the statements he's just made about God's character, there is so much irony here, I think it's easy to just see that at surface level, which is, it's stupid to do what he did. And that's true. But there's so much more irony built in that's worth examining because I think as you examine what he was saying, you may just see some of yourself in this. At least I did. I saw some of myself, I'm saying, not you. I saw you too, but that's another story. (laughs) And actually, God himself gives us the big picture of how to see what Jonah is saying here in his single, very simple statement in response in verse 4. God's response really nails the issue. He says, do you have good reason to be angry? Do you have good reason to be angry? Another way to express it is, if you looked at the language of the Hebrew, it's, are you right to be angry? Are you correct to be angry? The actual word being used there is pleasure or happiness. So, in literal terms, he's saying, uh, is being angry making you happy? But I don't think that's the real sense of it. That's sort of a slang way of putting it. But in the real sense of it, I think it is to say, do you have a right or a reason to be angry here? And he's saying really, when God says that rhetorical question, he's saying two things at once. Let's start with the most obvious of the two. What God is saying is, you can't fault God for being who he is, which is how Jonah has set up this argument. He's saying God's at fault because God's merciful. God's at fault because God is forgiving. And because God is willing to relent of judgment. His nature, and here's a principle that we often take into our own experience or, or fail to take into our own experience when we deal with God in our own way. His nature and His character defines good in the absolute sense. If you want to know what good is, not in a relative sense, but in the absolute sense of the word, it is God. Christ says himself in the Gospels to the man who comes to him and says, Good teacher, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And the first question Jesus responded to was, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And Jesus, when he says that, is using the word in the absolute sense. Not in the relative sense, but in the absolute sense. There is no such thing as goodness except God himself, who by his nature and character defines what is good. And everything that departs from who God is has by definition become bad. Not just a less good, but good as a point, not as a range. God is the point of goodness. Everything else is bad by definition. Which is why we say you can't earn your way to heaven. That's where the principle in Scripture says you cannot work your way to heaven. You can try, but you can never accomplish enough good work in your life to ever erase what is also bad in your life. And one bad thing, one sin, takes you off the point of good. And that's all it takes to receive the judgment of God. And you can't erase it. You can't go back in time. So you are forever marked by something in your life less than good. You can never hope to recover from that. As James says, if you break one law, you've broken all of the law. So it's in that sense here that God's character defines goodness. He is good. Nothing else is. Everything else must be measured by that standard. Nothing God does, therefore, nor what he refrains from doing, is bad. Nothing he commands, nor anything he permits, is wrong. Nothing he upholds or anything he brings low is unjustified. Nothing he speaks is in error and nothing he purposes is other than as it should be. God is always in everything he does, thinks, or says the definition of perfect and good. For any man, therefore, like Jonah, someone who is within God's creation, to stand before the Creator, as Jonah is doing now, and make accusations that somehow suggest that God's perfect nature is imperfect, That is, by the way, the definition of blasphemy. If you want to know what the definition of blasphemy is, it is to impugn God's character or nature, to remove him from where he is in reality and diminish him in some sense, to make him less than he is, to declare him to be evil or wrong or bad or in some sense less than who he truly is. That is blasphemy in its technical definition. So what Jonah's done right now is committed blasphemy before God. 
Now, don't get too worried about that. This is hardly the first thing he's done wrong in the last four chapters. Right? It's just the next one in line. But it is what it is. He tells God that his graciousness and his mercy were good justification for Jonah to oppose him and to work in a way that thwarted his plan. He was telling God, you are who you are, and that was good enough reason for me to do what I did in, in opposing you. You know, that's effectively what Adam and Eve did. I mean, in a sense, if you get back to the root of it, God being who God was, was reason for Adam to consider doing it on his own, wanting to be his own God, wanting to be in charge himself. If you've ever had one of your children react with anger because you dared show mercy or grace to one of their siblings over some offense, then you know a little bit of what God might have felt like in this moment. I don't know if you've ever had this, but I've had one child look at me and get mad because I was gracious to the other in the face of some mistake they made. And you want to look at the one and say, you'll feel better if I punish them? And you know what answer you get, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. Yeah. And let them have it good. (laughs) Now, in the moment, it seems like the right response because it appeals in some way to our sense of fairness and justice. We feel like that's the definition of justice. But when we reverse the roles, all of a sudden our definition of, of justice changes, doesn't it? So what Jonah has done here for the moment is he has defined an attribute of God that in the past was a good thing, now suddenly it's become a bad thing because of where he stands in relationship to it. And that's where the irony deepens because if Jonah could have had his way, if he could have had God not be gracious and forgiving to Nineveh, if that had been, the, if he had got his way with God, what were that, where would that have left Jonah? Where would that have left Jonah? Based on his comments on what he's asked for God to do here, it, it's, I think it's obvious the only way he would have been happy is if God had turned a deaf ear to the Ninevites, Ninevites' repentance, ignored their repentance, and brought judgment at the end of 40 days, just like he said. That's probably the only thing that would have made Jonah happy in these circumstances, right? So Jonah's preferred God was a God that turned a deaf ear to cries for mercy and forgiveness, at least in the case of the Ninevites. Now, there is probably not another man on earth in this moment less qualified than Jonah to make such a demand of God. If you consider what he's put God through in the last three chapters. Because Jonah was the man, if you remember, who prayed to God from the belly of the fish for mercy. Seeking God's mercy. Praising God because he was a God who heard prayer. Right? The God who Jonah declared to be the one responsible for salvation at the very end of chapter 2. If you look at the very end of chapter 2, it is, salvation is from the Lord, Jonah said. Right? That would tell us that if God is the kind of God Jonah wants in the belly of a fish, now it's the other way around. This is the kind of God that makes Jonah very upset. And yet, what is he doing? Exactly the same thing he did for Jonah. The irony here is about how God is not the right God for Jonah when, it's on the, when the shoe's on the other foot. Then there's the final irony before we move on. Why is Jonah so angry that God saved the Ninevites after they repented? Well, we've said already the principal reason here is because he thinks this is the nation that's going to one day destroy Israel. But why did God assign Israel that terrible future in the first place? What was it that caused God to tell the nation of Israel through Amos that one day they were going to be captives of another nation who was going to take them out and destroy their country because of their sin? It was because that nation had never repented before him of their offenses. They had heard the message, but they had rejected the message of repentance. Yet Jonah is angry at God because God is orchestrating the destruction of his own country through a people that he is willing to spare on the basis of repentance. In fact, you can see this in verse 2 when he says, my own country, there's that little phrase mixed in there as he talks about, see, I told you when I was back in my country. It emphasizes his presence of mind that he's thinking in terms of his country versus this country. That's his concern. So Jonah's demand that God not show mercy was designed, at least in Jonah's mind, to save the nation of Israel from destruction, right? But now, look at the irony. If God were that kind of God, if he was the kind of God who would overlook the Ninevites' pleas for mercy, then how would he have responded to an Israel who would have repented? How could he have ever saved his own nation if he was the kind of God that overlooked repentance? Remember the prophet Amos? We read some of his verses a couple weeks ago when we looked at how Amos was predicting that outcome for the nation of Israel, right? 
He was uh, Jonah's contemporary. Here's, uh, here's some new verses I didn't read. Here's what Amos has to say about the eventual history of the nation of Israel. Eventually what's going to happen. Amos 9, verse 3. I'll begin with a recap, a little bit of a recap on how they will be destroyed. He says, Though they will hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. Talking about the nation of Israel. Though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and I will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, and there I, uh, uh, from there I will command the sword that it slay them, and I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. Alright, so that's the background. That's him confirming that through the nation of Assyria, he's going to take this people captive and he's going to destroy them for their sinfulness and their lack of repentance. But if you go just a few verses later in that same chapter, Amos 9, verse 8, look what he says. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. So here's Amos speaking for nine chapters on all that God is prepared to do to punish the nation for their disobedience. But isn't it interesting how he ends that chapter? This is the end, near the end of the book of Amos. He says, despite all that I'm going to have to do to them for their unrepentant nature and their wickedness, in the end, I'm bringing them back and I'm going to restore them once for all. Ultimately, God is going to show Israel mercy by bringing the nation of Assyria against them. Do you see how that works? In the way he's going to use the nation of Assyria to come in and destroy the nation partly and carry them away temporarily, it is an alternative to the only other choice God had, which would have been a total wiping out of the nation of Israel. Ultimately, Assyria is the least God can do to the nation. And by having Assyria around to carry this out, God is actually preventing a worse destruction against the nation of Israel. Their ultimate demise would be the alternative. So the irony of ironies here is that while he's, command, he's upset at God for God willing to show repentance to the nation of Assyria, it is that same merciful, forgiving God that is ultimately going to use the nation of Assyria to discipline Israel but not destroy it. For if he was the kind of God Jonah wanted, he wouldn't have sent Jonah to Nineveh in the first place because he wouldn't have need the Assyrians, because he would just wipe out Israel once and for all. The irony is that if God were the kind of God Jonah wanted, Jonah wouldn't exist. Compassion, gracious, slow to anger, abundant loving kindness, those were the same traits of God that ultimately were going to be used in saving Jonah's beloved Israel. Now in verse 3, Jonah asks to die again. This guy's got a real death wish, doesn't he? You can count now. If you haven't started, you can count the number of times this guy's asked to die. I, I detect a little manic depressiveness in this guy. You'll see it come up again here in chapter 4 again. First, if you remember, he asked to be killed by having the sailors throw him overboard, remember? Uh, now he's asking God to kill him directly. Just kill me. If you've ever wanted an example in Scripture of why it's good that sometimes God answers our prayers with a no instead of a yes, this is an example of that. Because God doesn't give him what he wants. He doesn't get his yes here when he asks to be killed. He, he graciously ignores the request. And Jonah's request here is more of that same pity party going on. He's trying to play that martyr. I'd rather die than live. It's in the sense of, I would rather die now than live to see the result of what this repentance will mean for the nation of Israel. And maybe on a personal level, I'd rather die now than have to experience what's going to come upon me for having been used by you to do this work, to save our nation's enemy. Then God gives his response, which, which we've already discussed, the response that do you have right to be angry. Now I want you to look at Jonah's reaction. In chapter 4, verse 5, Jonah went out from the city, sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So what's Jonah doing here? I mean, at first glance, it seems as though he's, he's just sitting up on this hill pouting. Right? The pity party has just moved to a new location. He's just sitting up there and he's just going to watch the city and kind of do this. That's kind of the picture I have of the guy, just sitting there like this, underneath this little tent or this little booth that he's built. The word in Hebrew is actually the same word as tabernacle or booth. 
where it's used to describe the Feast of Booths. And there's probably some of that here. I don't think that's a wrong impression. I think he probably is resentful and he's sitting up there to show it. But the text here suggests other motives as well. Not merely the motive of being petulant. In verse 5, we're told that Jonah went up to a hill so that he could see what would come of the city. Now, this verse can only make sense if there was still some doubt in Jonah's mind about whether God was going to show mercy or not. In light of what he just said to God a minute ago, see, I told you you would forgive them. Having said that, but now sitting up on the, city, on the hill to watch what will happen, how do you put those two things together? Is the guy schizophrenic? He's got ADHD, a short memory. Why would he go up on the hill to see what's going to happen if he's already declared to God himself it's, not going, to, you know, it's going to be forgiven? What gives him any hope that the nation is not going to be forgiven? Because what he, what he wants to do is sit up on this hill, much like Abraham overlooked the city of Sodom and Gomorrah when it was destroyed in Genesis, and he could see it burning. That's what he wants. He wants a good vantage point from which to look at the fireworks. But, but what makes him think that's going to happen? God asks, do you have a good reason to be angry? Maybe Jonah heard those words, but rather than hear it spoken as a critique, which we understand it to be now, in the moment, maybe he heard it a little differently. Maybe he heard God suggesting that the end had not yet been determined. In other words, do you have reason to be angry yet? I mean, do you really know for sure what's going to happen yet? You know, do you have anything on which to be I mean, all you've done is preached. How, what, you're yelling at me like I've done something. You don't know what's going to happen yet. Do you have reason yet to be angry? Now, I'm not saying that's what God meant, but I'm wondering if that's not what Jonah heard. And the reason he might have heard it that way is because that's what he desperately wants to believe. That's his hope, is that the city is not out of the woods yet. That maybe after 40 days, the nation will have returned to their old ways. That this little first blush of repentance won't last. Before the 40 days are up, maybe they'll be back praising their pagan gods again and God will be right on them like he planned to be. So the only thing I sense in this, the only thing that makes any sense to me anyway, is that as he heard God say, do you have reason yet to be angry or do you have any cause to be angry? It gave him a glimmer of hope. And so he says, I'm just going to camp up here on this hill and I'm going to check things out for a while and maybe I'll get what I want after all. So he builds himself a little booth, as we're told. Then verse 6, so the Lord God appointed a plant And it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Here's that that kind of manic, depressive thing going on again. One minute he's down in the dumps, kill me. Next minute he's thrilled over a plant. What you ought to notice right up front is despite the fact that he built for himself a shelter, he's already got shade, God gives him a plant for shade. The temperature in the desert, by the way, this is a Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, probably reached about 120 degrees or more on average days. So shade was important. This isn't a minor detail. And it's also important to note, this is the first time in the entire story that Jonah's been reported to be happy. And that's notable because of the words being used here. The Hebrew here says, greatly happy, ecstatically happy. There really isn't any way in the Hebrew to express more happiness than is being expressed in these verses. So pick whatever superlatives you want. So, like I said, this guy, you know, I wish he was on my shopping list for Christmas because apparently he's easy to please. You put a little plant next to the guy and he's ecstatic, even though he's already got shade. I think the shade is still relevant. I think it's still the case that any shade helps. But I don't think it was, strictly speaking, that he got shade that made him happy because, as I said, he's already built himself a little bit of a shelter. And the text does not tell us this specifically. I want to acknowledge that up front. But I think there's more to his excitement here than just the fact that there is shade. And and let's begin with this observation. How often do you see huge plants? And this is a plant, we don't know the species, but it's large enough clearly to grow up and shade a man from the sun. How often do you see a plant like that growing in a matter of a few minutes or hours? In the middle of the desert with no one watering it and certainly no one planting it. Well, I haven't seen it. I doubt he had ever seen it, which means it was obviously supernatural. The guy's sitting there. Next thing you know, and in the way it's told later in this chapter, it happened overnight. So maybe he wakes up and he finds this huge plant over him. You do that, you know what you think? God did that. You know, you don't have to go to school to learn that one. Knowing it's God doing it tells him something. But it tells him the wrong thing, in my opinion. So Jonah's perspective is that what God, what he had heard from God earlier was, you may not have reason to be upset, 
Now he's sitting on a hill to watch what God's prepared to do and he witnesses this amazing side of this plant growing out of nowhere to comfort him and he immediately recognizes it as a miracle sent by God. You know, God didn't send a bear. He didn't send a lion. He didn't send a plague or hailstorms. He sent something nice and helpful. And in light of that, God seemed to be comforting him, which reinforced, I believe, his opinion that he was right to sit there and wait. That there was something about to happen. That in other words, God was helping give him comfort and assurance that, yep, you're doing the right thing. Just wait right here. I'm taking good care of you. And he gets ecstatically happy because of the plant. I would argue no, not so much the plant itself, but because of what the plant meant to him. What it meant was, God is on my side. We are about to see the city destroyed. Hooray. There's reason to wait. Because after all, why send me a plant, God? Why go to the trouble to do something supernatural? I mean, don't get the impression that because this guy lived in Old Testament times and he was a prophet, that he was used to seeing this stuff all the time. You know, that's the Sunday school kind of storybook view that's not necessarily true in Scripture, you know. They were still talking about the Red Sea in his day. You know, this is not something that every day you woke up and God did something miraculous in front of you. I don't believe any more so than he does for you and I today. I believe this was something that struck Jonah. And in striking Jonah as being a miracle, he takes it as a clear sign from God that he has good reason to wait. And so he's encouraged by that. But he's on the wrong track, as you know. We know there's actually a second reason or the real reason for why that plant just grew up. It's to teach Jonah a lesson that he dearly needs to learn. I can't help but also read a little mocking into this. Do you sense that a little bit? Here's the equivalent of what we do with our own kids. The, the six-year-old that comes into your room mad at something you've done, at some rule, or at something you've told them they can't have, and they've got a little sack prepared and they're running away. And the mom, rather than stop them or complain or do whatever you would, they are expecting, the mom says, well, here, let me just open the door for you. Hope you, know, hope you have a good day. You know, kind of makes it too easy. And to the child who understands that's not what moms should do, they're mocked and they get angry about that, don't they? Well, God, I think, has a sense of humor in that same way here and is perhaps mocking Jonah just a little bit for his pity party. But Jonah doesn't pick up on that. He picks up on it as encouragement to do what he's doing. But God's not done with this little plan. So verse 7 God appoints a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. I mean, I guess there's really only two things you can make Jonah happy with, death or a plant. That's it. So on the very next day, God appoints this worm. Now, the word for appoint here means destined or ordained. We've seen this word a number of times in this book already. If you kind of go back in your mind, he appointed a fish. Then we're told he appointed the plant, of course. Now it's appointing a worm. Soon we're going to, we just saw him appoint a scorching wind. In the preceding verse, there was also another important switch in the way God is referred to in the book. For the very first time in the book, the name God is represented by two words, Yahweh Elohim, which means Lord God. In contrast to what we've seen up to this point, that's a very strong change. That, that's a, a very formal term. It occurs about a couple hundred times in the Old Testament. But every time it's used, it's reserved for moments where the text is trying to communicate God's supreme sovereignty over his creation, his absolute authority. You'll commonly see it, for example, in the first four chapters of Genesis when he's creating the world or when he's ordaining men in the world. You'll see it often when he's giving covenants to Abraham or to the other patriarchs. Or you'll see it when he's exhibiting his power in Exodus before the Pharaoh. The Lord God says this. The Lord God said, let my people go. It's, it's the difference between saying you know, uh, somebody's first name and saying Mr. So-and-so. It just adds an air of formality and of seriousness to the whole conversation. Why is it being introduced here at this point? Well, you get the sense as you've been reading this with me that this narrative is building towards some point that God's going to make to Jonah. That's obvious enough. And part of this point is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And, and that sovereignty is going to collide right about now with Jonah's selfishness. You know, up till now, Jonah's selfishness has been on display the whole way through. And so has God's sovereignty. But God, in His gracious manner, has been allowing Jonah to kind of continue in his selfishness and continue in his pity. And only when he had to, like with the fish, did God intervene to put Jonah back on track. But otherwise, he's basically left Jonah to his, to his emotions and his false perception but he's kind of tired of it now. You get that way sometimes with kids? Because I think that's God's perspective of us as his children. I'll let you go only so far and then, okay, it's time to stop this nonsense. And that's, I think, the point at which God has just reached. 
Just as quickly as God brings the plant up, he takes it down. And doing so is just as supernatural as it was to bring it up. So, in other words, everything about these circumstances has been orchestrated by God to make it clear to Jonah that God is behind the scenes the whole time. None of this stuff is coincidence. You couldn't have been Jonah, sit through all of this, and just assume you caught that hill on a good day. You know, the perfect day when the plant grew. Nor are you going to sit here on the next morning and watch the plant die and say, God, bad luck, the plant just died that quickly. No, you know that was God too. So there's no confusion, if you're Jonah, about who's doing this and who's behind it. He's fully aware that God is doing it. So as the plant withers, God then goes just one more step, I think, in communicating to Jonah his lesson here. He sends his scorching wind. So it's not just that he doesn't have the plant now. Now it's kind of a double negative. Now he's missing not only the shade, but then there's this scorching wind. This is a very specific meteorological event in this part of the world. It's a hot east wind, this phrase, east wind. That's the clue we need to know what we're looking at. It's a phenomenon, even in the Middle East today. If you've ever seen stories coming back from the troops in the Middle East that are dealing with this horrendous windstorms that come along over there and they're blowing for days and they raise the temperature, that's the phenomenon. They have a name for it. It's called a Sirocco. When the Sirocco's blow in, in this part of the world, uh, in fact, I found a description of them so you can see just how they are perceived from people who have gone through them. Here's a quote. During the period of a Sirocco, the temperature rises steeply, sometimes even climbing during the night. And it remains high, around 16 to 22 degrees Fahrenheit, above the average, which in this area is already well over 100 degrees. At times, every scrap of moisture seems to have been extracted from the air so that one has this curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn much tighter than usual. Sirocco days are, partic- are particularly trying to the temper and they tend to make even the mildest person irritable and fretful and to snap at one another for apparently no reason at all. So in other words, even someone like me might be having a bad day. <laughs> and I think there are days in my home when I think there's a Sirocco going on, but that's another story. This was the experience that Jonah had on the hill that day. And Jonah in that moment reverts to his natural state, right? Anger and disappointment and please kill me and just take me away from this earth. And you have to agree he's going to be upset over the uncomfortable circumstances. That's clear enough. But I again say that's not all that's going on here. Just as before his happiness wasn't driven by the plant, I don't think his anger is driven exclusively by the weather. That only made it worse. I think what he's also aware of, what's become apparent to him, is that what he had hoped to see happen in Nineveh wasn't going to happen after all. And now he gets the double whammy of saying, well, okay, God, this was all just to show me something, wasn't it? And maybe even to mock me a little bit. And now I'm really annoyed as well as upset. And again, he gets the death wish. Why does this keep coming up for Jonah? Why does he keep saying, kill me? You know, it's easy to dismiss it as like a preteen kind of exaggeration. I don't think he means it that way. It's easy, on the one hand, for a child to tell his parent, kill me, knowing it's not going to happen, though the parent might have other ideas. But it's another thing for Jonah to stand before the living God, who he knows can take him out in a moment, and ask to be killed. You know, let me give you a hint. Don't ever go to God and say, kill me, unless you're serious, because you don't know what he's going to do with that. And that's the, I, that's the question for me is, why does he keep returning to that particular request? Because those who believe that their death leads to something scary, you know, they're not inclined to ask to die, right? They fear death. That's not something they try to prompt. It's the one who wishes to die is the one who believes that it leads to something better. Jonah keeps asking to die because he believes that he's living under circumstances that are worse than what he would find if he were to die, right? That's the hope that's reserved for those who have entered into a relationship with God on the basis of faith. That's the the privilege that comes with faith in, in God's Word. You have the hope of an eternal existence with Him, not judgment. That's what he shares in. That's what he trusts in. That's why he is comfortable asking God to kill him. But that trust is dependent on a merciful God. That trust came because he knew the God he served was the kind of God to honor his promises and be merciful to those who have repented. That's the only reason why he can stand before God in his anger and his pity party and demand to be killed is because he can trust in God to be honoring to his word. How ironic that his basis for asking to be killed is anger over the very characteristic that makes it possible for him to want to die. The God that would be merciful to him in death is the one that's angered him in how he's been merciful to the Ninevites. 
God's response there to, to that statement then perfectly mirrors his earlier statement. He asks again if Jonah had good reason to be angry. He said in verse 4 earlier, do you have good reason to be angry? Now in verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, oh, I have good reason to be angry. Oh yeah, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. What, 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 what a contemptuous kind of statement to throw back in God's face. Jonah didn't answer God the first time, but now he answers him. Did you notice that? In his first comment, he left the, the, the question unanswered. Now he has the gall to actually turn back to God and say, yes, I have reason to be angry, even to the point of death. In other words, he's saying he was right to seek death rather than to live through the consequences of seeing that city saved. Now God turns the tables, and here's, of course, where the climax of the story arrives. Chapter 4, verse 10. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant? For, for which you did not work, for which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight? Well, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? And the book stops abruptly. Now, God makes a comparison here, and he does it in a way that's designed to get Jonah to see things from his perspective. Let's take ourselves through that loop for just a minute. First, God says, Jonah had compassion on the plant, but the word there, compassion, it really doesn't communicate well what God intends here by what's written in the Hebrew. Rather than compassion, what God is really reminding Jonah here is that he felt justified to be angry in the face of the plant's destruction. So in other words, it's not so much compassion, but rather justified anger. He's saying, you felt justified anger over the death of the plant? Why? That's the implicit question. It's not asked, but it's really implied. Why did you feel justified in your anger over the plant? Well, first, because the plant was useful. Because it served a useful purpose. And that's why he would have compassion on it. That's why he would feel sad or be angry, if you will, that, he would, that the plant disappeared. Secondly, he was angry because it had been a sign to him of hopeful things to come. And as a sign of hopeful things to come, it meant that he could expect a positive outcome in waiting and watching for that city to be destroyed. But then when the plant died, that hope was lost. He recognized, oh, you weren't giving me this plant to encourage, to encourage me. You were doing it just to make fun of me or to teach me a lesson. Now I see what's really going on, and the hope disappeared at the same time. So all that, was remained, all that remained at that point was disappointment and, of course, the discomfort from that hot wind. But then God tells him, you know, you had no investment in that plant. You never asked for it. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. It was just a dumb plant. And God gave him that plant just as a matter of grace. Just as a favor to Jonah. Then God says to Jonah, I want you to see the world with the same eyes as I see the world. as the way God sees the world. He asks, why doesn't Jonah have the same anger then over the destruction of Nineveh? That's where this word compassion doesn't give you the right impression. Make the comparison. If you're angry over the plant and its destruction, then why aren't you equally angry? over the destruction of the city of Nineveh, a city with 120,000 people who don't know the truth. And that's what that phrase, you don't know your left hand from your right hand, means. It means they're oblivious to the truth. We're not saying they were innocents, because they were sinful men and women too, but they were without hope apart from God's message through Jonah. They had no hope to know the truth on their own. So shouldn't Jonah be equally angry over their demise? After all, in comparison to the plant, Jonah did have an investment in their new birth, Jonah did participate, if you will, in the work of their new life. Now, we understand that it came through God's Holy Spirit. It wasn't the work of a man. But unlike the plant, which just came up on its own, Jonah had no knowledge of it, no request for it. Here's a city that converted because Jonah put in effort that God directed. And he showed absolutely no interest in them. So in contrast to the, word, or to the plant, Jonah should feel some kind of anger if they weren't to repent, if his work wasn't to find success. Secondly, he said he found hope, or we believe he found hope in the emergence of this plant when he was up on the hill, you know, life coming out of nothing, and yet he finds nothing but despair in the emergence of new life from within that city. Yet the fact that God, and here's, I think, the, the crux of the issue for Jonah, here's the crux of the point for God to make to Jonah. The fact that God could bring a people back to life in the way he just did in Nineveh should have been the same kind of foundation of hope for Jonah that that little plant represented to him when he sat on the hill. Because it represented the possibility that God would ultimately be able to save a nation of unrepentant Jews. 
that if he could do this for a city that did not know him and did not seek after him and do it in such a convincing and supernatural way, it should be the source of hope for Jonah to sit on the hill, so to speak, and look down on the city of Jerusalem, as it were, and hope for the best for that city as a result of who he knows God to be and the power he's seen God display through this city using just one unmotivated prophet. That should have been a source of hope. And he knew what God was saying through Amos. He knew that what Amos was telling that nation at the same time he was in Nineveh was this hard message and that ultimately in that message was a hope of redemption for the nation of Israel because of God's mercy and because of God's willingness to respond to repentance. So rather than anger at the loss of this plant, God demands Jonah to understand where his compassion should reside. His compassion should reside for any people who would receive God's mercy because it means if he can do it for them, he can do it for me. That ultimately, if you want to put you in the center of this story and revolve the world around it, the perspective you take is not, as a child does, why didn't you punish them the way they deserved, but rather, thankfully, I'll receive the mercy that you offered to them because you are a compassionate God. There are two dominant themes in this book as we leave the, the, the study at, at this point. The first has been clearly reinforced since the beginning of the first chapter and it's probably worth reviewing just in this moment. And that is the unlimited sovereignty of God over his creation. I want you to consider as I just run through this list all that we've seen in this short book. A book that some have said is the most concentrated display of God's supernatural power of of any book in the Bible. First, he set a plan before men for the salvation of a people in a faraway country the country of Nineveh. He set that plan before Jonah as his intention. And by that we learned that God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He gave his word to those people through a prophet who was to carry out his plan. And through that we learned that God is sovereignly, actively communicating to his creation through men. And in our day it's through the word of God. He commanded the sea and the wind to obey his purpose. And so even the weather and the physical elements of the world respond exactly to suit his desires and purposes. There's no coincidental rainstorm. There's no happenstance earthquake. Every single weather event is under God's control. On the ship, we saw him control the, the throw of the dice. Remember the lots that were thrown to decide who was responsible for the storm? Even in the smallest events, as they play out in our lives, those are under God's control to ensure the outcome he determines. He commanded the fish to swallow Jonah so that we know even the animals will obey God's will. Yet Jonah survived that experience inexplicably, which tells us that even our physical lives are under God's control so that though our eventual death will come one day, How it comes and when it comes is merely another part of God's larger plan for the creation and it will happen at a time and in a manner prescribed by Him. Your day of death has been set from before you were born. So don't worry about it. The city of Nineveh responded supernaturally to this simple phrase spoken by Jonah. So we know that even the response of men in faith to God is a supernatural act of grace under God's control. You cannot, and I defy you to try, you cannot explain a city of 120,000 people simultaneously coming to belief in God when only a fraction of them actually heard the man speak. You cannot explain that in natural terms. You cannot explain it on the basis of a really convincing message. You can't explain it on the basis of really good marketing, a great theme song, you know, really effective visuals. You can't explain it on any basis except that God has the power to cause men to believe when he appoints it as as the outcome, and in the manner and in the way he does. And it's the very fact that it happened that way in the city of Nineveh so that he can be clear through his word to us that it was supernatural, that it wasn't a coincidence, so that we would know to give him credit for it. Finally, many of these same displays were, were seen in that last chapter as God used plants and animals and weather to reinforce the point to Jonah as he sat on that hill. So if you come away from this book with nothing else, let it be a renewed respect for God's sovereignty over the world and everything in it. That there is no such thing as a coincidence or luck. There is nothing outside his control. There is nothing that happens that is not a part of his plan. As I am fond of saying, there is no plan B. Everything that happens is part of plan A. 
And we cannot allow our limited understanding, and I agree, it is limited, but we cannot allow our limited understanding of God's purposes in a given situation define for us whether he is good or bad. Because that's what Jonah wanted to do. The second theme, and it's a shorter discussion by far, just a moment. The second theme here is the compassion of God upon the undeserving, of whom you and I are one. We are part of that undeserving group that will receive God's mercy by faith. It should cause us hope, not anger. It should cause us to desire God to succeed, not fail. Because it was the reason we can even look forward to our death in the way Jonah did in this book. Secondly, it is the compassion of God that even allowed us to be witnesses and perhaps participants in his divine plan of redemption in the first place. His compassion is what let Jonah have this mission. His mercy is why Jonah even existed as a man of God to begin with. His mercy ultimately was going to return to the nation of Israel despite what would happen in the meantime through the nation of Assyria because of what he was willing to do in disciplining rather than judging his people. How do you take a privilege like that and turn it into a liability? By complaining to God over his mercy. Romans 9.15, to end the study, says this, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. For he is God, and he is solely the one to do that. Let's go to prayer. Thank you for your attention. I hope the study blessed you, and I hope God is able to speak to you and do a work through his word. Uh, We'll close in prayer and fellowship time. Father, I thank you so much for the book of Jonah. Father, for the man of Jonah, for your willingness to take a man whose heart may not have been with you in all that he did, whose desires, perhaps, Father, were against yours at points along the way, Father. But then again, that describes each of us. And so, Father, we take from this story a bit of hope, I pray. Hope to know that though we may walk in disobedience, we may turn from you, we may go away that is not the way you have appointed. You don't give up. You are faithful even when we are faithless. And you know, Father, how to turn us back to you. And though it may require discipline at times, Father, that is what a loving Father does for his children. He disciplines them. And we thank you, Father, for the message of Jonah so that we might take encouragement to know that your mercy and your grace and your loving kindness abound far greater than even we would desire at times and that it can return to us as a result. We also pray, Father, that we might uh, take from Jonah a renewed appreciation for our need to obey and to go out, Father, with the message you've given us. Not that we presume, Father, what you intend to do, but because we hope that true to your nature, Father, you will do a good work and that your character, Father, will shine through us and that your word, Father, will not go out and return void. Lord, I thank you for this uh, time, this great blessed time in this room over the last few months with those who've gathered, for the privilege, Father, to teach and for the uh, opportunity to fellowship and to enjoy the love of the Holy Spirit in this room. I pray for each in here, Father, that they may uh, walk out from here with uh, many, many blessings as a result of their devotion to your word. And Father, we will trust in your will and look forward, if it be your will, to gathering again in the future as we study here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.